Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm in the Norfolk Hotel, which is really a pub or bar in Fremantle with a very old friend. In fact, I have to say, Professor Horst Rudroff, Emeritus Professor Horst Rudroff, supervised my PhD along with Tom O'Regan. So it is a, almost an act, act of filial piety to invite him into the pod. How are you, Horst? Thank you. Always better than I deserve. Well, we've known one another a long time. We met in a pub across the way, I think, the Salem Anchor, a mere 28 years ago. Lots happened since then. One thing is that you have a new book coming out. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's a, it's a book that uh, tries to fly in the face of all um, theorization of natural language. But it, it has a very, very simple thesis, which mm-hmm. is easily put, but not so easily argued. And the simple thesis is this. If I can imagine what you're talking about and the manner in which you do so, and uh, then there is meaning, if not, not, and vice versa. If you can understand what I'm talking about and the way I do so, there is meaning, if not, not. Now, this, this thesis has to establish itself against um, a very large number of positions. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about those two. Tell us how it relates to something like Donald Davidson's idea of linguistic charity. Yes, well, charity, charity is the... Well, yes, Davidson has, of course, a view of natural language that it can be described via Alfred Tusk's truth uh, convention, um, convention T, as it is known in the, in the literature. And uh, what, what Davidson doesn't let us know in his, his famous paper that uh, establishes that is that Tarski explicitly warned against um, using uh, convention T to describe natural languages. This was in a book in a book uh, published in German. It is a Polish philosopher, Tarski, um, in a book published in 1936, translated into English in 1956, uh, called I think, uh, "Logic, Semantics, Meta Mathematics." Uh-huh. And there he says, the reason why we shouldn't apply uh, this formula, snow is white, is true if and only if snow is white, is that none of these items there actually stand for items in natural language, they just look like it. They simply uh, are meant to illustrate um, uh, formal placeholders. Mm-hmm. It's not natural language in which this whole system works, it is only in formal logic form semantics. And he says if we violate that rule, then we uh, violate what makes natural language natural. And that is at the center of what I'm trying to do. What is it that makes natural language natural? Under it all, of course, you are a phenomenologist. So there is going to be bodily response and experience animating your account of natural language, semantics, and semiotics. Well, yes, um, my early training was certainly in, uh, in philosophy because I, I, I stand on, on two legs. I started with uh, studying English, uh, English literature and language and philosophy and history. Um, and uh, so the, what survived, has survived throughout my career is a combination of philosophical inquiry and, of course, uh, an interest, uh, uh, fundamentally interesting in English language and how it works in literary text. Um, and I've published from the beginning in both fields. Reader's Construction of Narrative, the Reader's Construction 1981, of Narrative. Routledge and Keegan Paul, crucial text in theories of narrative that allow one to bring into narrative the role of the reader and not only that of the author or genre. But not simply because it is a fashion that works, but because I was convinced that of, of the Ingardinian argument that what we call the literary work as something that emerges in active reading cannot exist in, in, in any form that you could compare with either the ideology of a triangle or a square on the one hand or materiality in the sense of a, of a rock or chairs etc. But that uh, literary works were examples of 
ontically heteronymous objects mm -hmm. that exist only in a combination of different ontic domains that have to be performed by the reader from the materiality of word sounds and written uh, signs uh, through to the construction of syntax, sentence meanings, uh, indicated aspects of uh, fictional characters in space, time, and so on and so on. And in the end, the construction of uh, a quasi-objective world. And of course, that is only partially given the literary work. It's a, this filling out, which you got for computerizations, is not simply a, a, a new emphasis on the reader. It, 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 it is fundamental. That object, what we call them, would not exist unless we, in the act of reading, putting this all together. Which was very much inherited by ESA, of course, and Yaus and the historians, by ESA and active reading and the implied reader. Reader aesthetic, uh, critique, reader reception. All goes back. Only to, one of them was in the SS, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there was another one, Paul DeMar, <laughs> whom I met. With. When I stayed at Yale for six months, yeah. Well, he was writing collaboratory journalism. I gather there's a new biography of him out, which indicates he was not just one of these people who did that because it was advisable to do so, but actually there were some quite deeply held beliefs there. Lots and lots of people are swept up in these political movements, and by the time they may think that they might perhaps have taken the wrong way, it's too late to, well, to, to reverse. You know, an interesting thing Frank Commode said yes. once, no friend of deconstruction, no friend of demand. Commode said, well, I was born in, whatever he was, 1919, three years after demand, something like that. He said, I would like to think that had I been in Belgium, an occupied country during the war, I would not have collaborated. Pause. Can I be certain? No. 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 I would say very much the same. It is very simple from non-totalitarian um, states and societies to judge. Uh, uh, it's, it's enormously difficult. But can I get back to this theory of language of and course. phenomenology? I'm particularly interested in the distance and the difference between, on the one hand, the high claims of a structuralist semiotics about the arbitrariness of meaning, the arbitrary assignation of signifier to signifier, their relation in the sign, versus onomatopoeia, guttural sounds, mm. these emanations that come from us mm. that may not be universal, but certainly cross conventional language norms, sure. as in national language sure. norms or international language norms, and our speech, right. of course. and are very much about uh, the body in action. Uh, the book addresses these questions, of course, in detail, and Saussure uh, uh, is one of the targets. And, and just to balance it a little bit, um, I'm fin um, methodologically a phenomenologist, but I'm also very much a Persian uh, semiotician. That's the third leg that he developed. Charles Sanders, please. When, when yes, when I met um, uh, Thomas Severok, who took me to his heart and you know, persuaded me to publish a book in, in the Anglican First, in the advanced series of, of semiotics, and the second one. Toronto later on. Pandora and Ockham. That was Pandora and Ockham, which was the transition from uh, literature to the implication of what meaning uh, should and can be in literary texts and in the reading of literary texts to uh, looking at natural language um, in general. Um, and then, of course, the next book is, is, is full on in terms of. Uh, what does analytic philosophy have to say about all these things from Frege, that's why it's called meaning from Frege from postmodern um, semantics and the body. Um, so, so methodologically, you're, you have phenomenology, but you also have natural language studies and you have Persian semiotics. And analytical tools. Yeah. You, you cannot today, I think, approach natural language um, well, you can, of course, approach it from any one angle. But if you leave out analytical philosophy, uh, this is the powerhouse. Uh, it's the dominant discourse. Um, even though I think uh, much of it uh, uh, is misleading in terms of what makes natural language natural.
Oh, thank you. That's good. Yes. Okay. Okay. I can do that. Are we, so, are we going to wait a little bit for my friend's pizza? Have you told that would be? Yes. Yeah, so they come from two mind. different kitchens. Doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it shouldn't be too much longer. That's okay. That's no problem. I just didn't want to start and have him sitting there salivating. Oh, no, no. It shouldn't be that long. Thank you. It's, it's, <laughs> Thank it's, you, it's, it's quite possible. Um, yes. All right. First of all, well, you mentioned the arbitrariness of the sun. Yeah. This is what I'm attacking. It's right. a past protective fallacy. Because of the following. There's no doubt that the, uh, the signifier is arbitrary. Even though onomatopoeia is a, rem a reminder where natural language comes from. Uh, we're all saying, oh, and our children, and, 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 and one can imagine, if one has any imagination, what they used to do before language emerged. Mm -hmm. I've just written a paper on the evolution of language, which is at the moment a hot topic. Um, even though it's huge and speculative, because it, as it has to be because of the paucity of empirical evidence. Yeah. yeah. But, however, if we perform a certain transcendental reduction of what natural language cannot do without, then we can ask the legitimate speculative question, well, what would these features have been before and what would they look like? Mm. So I have isolated three. Mm. Aboutness, 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 of which reference is a special case. Mm -hmm. And voice, which is the manner in which you uh, say something which in natural language is able to reverse the propositional, the propositional content of something. Um, brilliant essay, what, what's a failure? Um, so brilliant essay means fail again or something like that. Now you cannot do that in mathematics. Why? Because two fundamental reductions that have occurred that have established all the systems. The one is what I would call reduction of aboutness or referential uh, reduction. The other one is deictic reduction, both reduced to zero. The deictic is the here and there. The ictic, well, this is this is there's another point that is central to the book. Point instead of the marked x's of here, there, I, they, blah, 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 which is generally handled in linguistics under the x's. I'm, I have been proposing a very much more radical thesis of the x's. Implied the X's in its cultural form of cultural X's is the modal shadow of every single word in the language, not only when it's marked as I or we or here and then. Um, so even prepositions like on have a modal shadow of speaking. Are you speaking down on the on or up? And these are illustrated by means of the camera. The shot taken from below and the shot taken from above produces a very, very different on. And so, so you can see, sure. so implicit is hugely important in language. Now you can see now why formal, one of the things I need to throw out is, of course, formal approaches uh, to meaning in natural language. Of course, formal semantics is fine, as long as they don't claim this is what actually happens in natural language. In natural language, aboutness is never alone. It's always uh, modulated by the voice. And if you can't do that, I mean, then you can't uh, read the aboutness as a person in terms of their manner of speaking. You know, you're obviously not a speaker of the language. So, up, back to arbitrariness. Yeah. So, this, the, the signifier is clearly arbitrary. What is the signifier? And, and furthermore, the signified fire, the arbitrary signifier, is the result of a history of um, disembodiment, of which the remnants are what you mentioned on the here. But of course, today we could say the signifiers of language are arbitrary. Or a re embodiment through territorialization, through the state, education, and so on. Not without signifiers. Not without signifiers. This is where Laclau and people who only talk about signifiers, like Catherine, Catherine Hales and people like that, flickering signifiers, have, have got completely wrong. We never get to the state, because the state, in English, right, proof of the pudding. Wonderful creation. <laughs> proof of the pudding. Get a, an Indonesian um, uh, dictionary, 
pronunciation rules and start speaking, leave the door open, somebody walks past and they say, Toby, Toby's in the is very, very good. Toby doesn't understand the word he's talking about. Yeah. Okay, arbitrary signifiers. Cannot have semantic loads. If they do, you not only violate social phrasing law, but then it signifies. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're also violating the whole logic of natural language. Yeah. Okay, therefore, the signified, that is also regarded as arbitrary in, in social, in the, in the cool um, is regarded as arbitrary because it's part of the sign as a whole and the sign is arbitrary. But that's the past, past pro toto um, um, fallacy. He committed two past pro toto fallacies. One is to think that zemiology should be the master um, um, uh, level from which language from which all science systems should be out. That's, that's a form of linguistic imperialism, which is still very prevalent in French theorizing. And this tripped up those people who wanted to get the body back into language, like, like um, uh, Sisu and Ilgaray in particular, the tactile. Elaine Sisu, Lucy Rigaray, important semiotically influenced French feminists writing from the 60s right. and talking about the body as a locus classicus of the generation and experience of meaning. But since they inherited the wrong sort of linguistic and stuck to it without modifying it, they have nothing to actually get the tactile into. You need the motivated signified. Simple illustration. Um, a Chinese, a Frenchman, a German, an English person, sitting on a beach somewhere near Marseille and um, the Frenchman points at the stereo and says more cause of death or something like that. The German says my nickel is here, the Englishman says um, um, my bitter and the Chinese perhaps says something like uh, uh, what it doesn't. Right? They have no doubt that they all know that they're talking about the same term. Leaving cultural positioning of the big toe aside as a further sort of party and second order question uh, of signification. But they all know what they are talking about. While the signifiers are arbitrary, totally arbitrary. There's no connection between the signifiers, but the signifiers are totally through the human body. And if that were not so, we couldn't translate uh, languages because we share the same body. That's the best. Now, this has all kinds of consequences, of course, such as uh, that most um, languages share the one-word entry on natural kind objects, the dictionary, fish, you. Where they differ, where you have huge sizes of entries, is in big cultural terms. No. Does this mean, Horst, that there is infinite translatability? I say this because, like you, I speak different languages. And there are words in languages other than English that I understand, at least in the sense of believing there's a community of language because the people around me use the term, I seem to respond like they do. I seem to get the gist. But if somebody asked me to say what that word in Spanish meant in English, I actually wouldn't, other than at a denotative level, and the denotative level would not get at the actual no. signified, which is connotative. So well, is the infinite translatability? It gets you off the ground. Because it works with a toe, yeah. does it work with very connotative forms? But the thing you have eliminated, as all analytical philosophers do, is time. Imagine yourself being in Spain for a while, and you're very easy to move from Called the denotative plan to the In other words, I'm not the only person calling it that. Of course not. All but every way. single theorist you've mentioned just about does. Now, of course. Now, there's an interesting situation that is at the centre of your book, and that is, how is it possible that within the camera shutter speed of 250 milliseconds, 
a native speaker not only understands Umbrian's words but her little phrases. Wittgenstein had a name for it called Abrichtung in its German original. Abrichtung. Abrichtung, yeah. Richtung is directionality, Abrichtung. It's used in the military to make the soldiers all stand exactly in one line. And it's used for animals in circuses to make them jump exactly. And for those who don't know, Wittgenstein was a very notable Pacific participant in the First World War. Not involved in violence, involved in saving lives and helping people with problems from battlefield trauma, but, but somebody who knew about military discipline. uses this German term, Abrichtung, in order to show how we have been clodded into submission as far as the signified is concerned. He doesn't use the term signified, content. Uh, signified is concerned. At the so that you, at the cue of the term shoe, the signified shoe, when that happens, at that millisecond moment, you cannot entertain the notion of democracy. That's how we have been trained from the cradle to the grave. Because there's an immediate recognition or sighting of an object well, that is not about politics. Now we write in the question, are these images, are these well, whatever. Yeah. graded schematizations, are these... See, and, I'm and reducing it to an image, but no, 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 it, it allows me to knock out a whole series of theories. <laughs> One is called externalism. These are all theories that say language can be described by observing what is happening. Behaviorist, um, uh, formal approaches where you know you write things on the page and that's it, and language is there. Um, Austinian locutions, um, as if language was actually speaking itself. It never is. I've never heard a sentence speak itself. You need people speaking sentences, and when they do say, they could create aboutness and voice, voice modulating the aboutness. And the other one is syntactocentrism. Uh, syntactocentrism is a term created by uh, Jackendorf. Uh, I don't know this American uh, linguist, beautiful term. Syntactocentrism, of which we know, of course, think immediately of, of Chomsky. We think yeah. that syntax comes first. Now, it's very clear that words come first and do more. Now, what the other one would be not for Doyle the language of thought. That's another approach to natural language. That we have a language, some form of language in our brain, and then this how we can master language. Which, as Ryle has cleverly shown, leads immediately to an infinite regress. If you need a language to cash in language, then you need another language to cash in that, ad infinitum. In fact, you never get out of the merry-go-round of signifiers. But Gilbert Ryle and Freddie Eyre, who are two of the Anglo-American philosophical tradition hegemons, to whom, of course, has been referring, he loves it when I use dirty words like hegemon, have a debate about logical positivism and the possibility of a final meaning of meaning. Yes. Of course possible in formal semantics, but not in natural language. Not only on the grounds of Percy and infinite symbiosis, which Derrida borrows and you know, but for all kinds of other reasons. Um, first of all, we have to establish what is this infinite symbiosis? And if meaning occurs, the buck of this infinite regress has to stop somewhere. How do you stop the buck of infinite regress of signifiers chasing signifiers? If that happened, we'd never understand anything. Nobody would understand anything. Culture wouldn't occur. Jumping to the large scale. So what happens? Peirce gives us the, the trick. He says, every assertion must contain an icon or some sign that could be translated in icon in order to facilitate human understanding. So visuality is privileged? Well, visuality is, of course, the cognitive uh, visual bias, which we want to avoid. So the olfactory, the gastrogen, the tactile, the gravitation, the kinetic, the thermal, the emotional, all these have to go together with the vision. Otherwise you are in a, in a hopelessly 
um, visually biased um, uh, kind of explanation of, 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 of natural language, which is insufficient. Why is there this struggle on wine bottle labels? Yeah. Why? Because our vocabulary at the olfactory and gastronomy scale is tiny in any natural language. Well, it's huge at the visual. So, things like like plums, um, apricot, um, and so on and so on, a bit of lemongrass, and you know, all these things we read are uh, substitutions for the vocabulary we lack. While at the same time, we can trust science in saying that humans, in spite of their um, you know, deteriorated sense of smell, can still distinguish at least 10,000 smell, smells. And we can do this experiment without words. Well, here's my question. This is where politics and capitalism come in. As a person who enjoys drinking wine, I'm doing so now while you're on a more proletarian hop-like substance. As I receive more and more information on labels and in, on menus about approximations of wine tastes, and I'm told things contain the flavors of, allegedly, or in a sense symptomatically, mm -hmm. X and Y entity, yeah. often combined in a syntam that seems completely bizarre to me. Mm -hmm. The reference for me is not necessarily pepper or plum. Right. The reference is the desire to give me knowledge in terms I can understand that viticulture itself would not use, and, and hence to engage in product differentiation and marketing. My answer to this is, this is moving at such a high level of abstraction and complexity that um, it seems to be quite remote from the sort of very, very basic theoretical issues that I'm battling with. But ultimately, they are connected. Mm -hmm. Because the very same arguments that are required in order to sh uh, show how I understand um, the word putrid applies to understanding the word capitalism. It's simply a, a very, very complex um, layered, multi-layered uh, uh, kind of discourse. Um, but I am addressing the absolute, the meta-semantic principles that are so taken uh, for granted in various shapes, all these theories. Uh, for instance, applied calculus metaphor. Language is like an applied calculus, right, like a measuring tape. Um, you have a language, say, Navajo, and you apply it to the word, and then this is how understand like a measuring tape. Too. The big difference is that the measuring tape has units that are formally designed. So the world is measured in terms of the units. While language has emerged actually from the analog observation of the world. And so it is not an accident, not a theoretical creation that dogs in English have four legs. <laughs> so we see there is an a priori, a posteriori confusion here. Right. So that's another one to be knocked out. Language only in part looks like an applied uh, uh, calculus. It is not. It has grown up. It has evolved from. And as three things have evolved from pre-verbal human forms of communication, you could see aboutness, the perceptual world, yeah, um, voice, the grunts and hisses and um, attack mode and soothing modes. Of the human body and proto-syntax. Proto-syntax. Yes. The assumption that synt linguistic syntax has emerged out of language is one of those theological uh, hangovers. That the, the Chomsky of always religious. Well, many theorists don't realize that they are creationists in a certain sense. The structuralist assumption that Levi Strauss held and a guy called Eric Gans, Gans, Gans American man, that language was born in one stroke, would be the only thing in evolution that was born in one stroke. 
the most like, unlikely as well. Um, it probably took a million years as a graphic several perhaps. Well, it's not just language. Uh, when you talk to people who really know about DNA, yeah. the word they use again and again is history. It's not biology. Biologists say DNA is about massive distillations of history. Yes, I'm very fond of certain biological pictures that are being painted at the moment. One is by Tukamse Fitch, who's just brought out a book in 2010 at Cambridge University book on, uh, on language, evolution of language. There's a whole massive series coming out all over the world now, in spite of the paucity of the empirical evidence. But one thing he argues in one paper is the point that we can start with a nano-intentionality of amoeba and go forward to higher animals and yeah. homo sapiens sapiens. Um, this double sapiens is something I really like. <laughs> the ultimate arrogance. <laughs> Where the one cell structure that could transform its chemistry to uh, increase the probability of uh, useful food intake to the separation of inputs, perceptual inputs and internal monitoring in sponges and then a radical increase of that separation between input cells and monitoring cells till you get to the human brain where you have this incredible asymmetry between a few, well a few million input cells and they say now well over a hundred billion neurons. What do all these neurons do, you know, cut off from the world? I'm not sure, but I think you and I both have somewhat fewer than we did in 1986 at the same Oh, yes, but uh, we have plenty to spare. <laughs> yes. We have sacrificed a, a lot to Dionysius. <laughs> Acus, most of all. Acus, the Latin version, yes. Mm. Um, so, so uh, there is a quantifying argument mm. for human imaginability second part of the title of the new book. Right. So imaginability becomes for me the base um, and is not to be confused with conceivability, which is all already verbal and propositional. Mm -hmm. It is the pre the gustative, the olfactory, the realization of the world. Now, of course, the Caesarians would say you cannot possibly uh, separate language from the world. Of course we can't, but there are certain um, cases where we can still sense when we can't find the words. Sexual intimacy and in tasting things. And so, that we are very much in touch with the world at a non-verbal Well, think of all those moments when in writing, putting down three periods, dot, 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 says a great deal. An enormous amount. Or, when telling a story or adopting a position, one stops mid-sentence and allows the words to sit and looks at the other or doesn't. How much meaning is generated in those well, moments? Did you take Thank that? You. Can, I, can I get another glass of red wine? Uh, it's Thanks actually, yeah. Oh, it's okay. Because I, all right, fine. Understand. Yeah. That's okay. It's a great pity. That system doesn't allow that. You know, one of the things about Australia, those of you who've never been here, which will be most of the listeners, is that it is the most governed society one can imagine, not just in a state-based way, but rule-driven, rule-governed, even as it is populated by people who like to drink vast amounts of alcohol and fall over right. in between shouting at one Well, there's a connection, they fall over because they've never had a good drinking culture. This is the Anglo-Saxon problem. But in Britain, on, it's incredible. Hooked on the blue sky, the sense of space, the freedom. Uh, very nice, hospitable people, yeah. generous people. I do miss uh, the European architecture. But back to <laughs> and the debates. But back to uh, language and imaginability. Yeah. yeah. Um, imagine imaginability then becomes the ground 
the human that is the ground from which everything human emerges. And if we can't handle that in our description of language in some way, we will never be able to account for what makes language natural. Imaginability, think of um, scenarios for a million years. Hominids used to be jumped by leopards out of foliage and they couldn't control it. Then gradually they developed the ability to imagine a leopard that might be behind the foliage. A huge evolutionary step forward. Predictability. This is Ted Hughes and the Thought Fox. Yes, of course. When Ted Hughes feels the Thought Fox peeping up. I used to teach this program. Or Tiger Tiger Burning Bright. It's Ted Hughes' Thought Fox. Very much so. Yes. So, so imaginability in all its forms for human survival, hominid survival, must have been highly developed and perhaps was a precondition for the. We're trying to find a glass of red wine for him, but it's, really? he's interviewing me, but he, so he can't. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's nothing from here, but is there any way we could bribe one of you to get me another glass of red wine so we can keep the four? Yeah, what we do you know you're drinking? Uh, Tempranillo. Tempranillo? Yeah, yeah. I give you some money to hand over. I think that'll be enough. Yes, sure. Uh, well, hang on, I've got a little bit more. Now, and that's another side to Australians. There is the person who will break the rules. Oh, always. That's the other side. It is, and this is where Long and Parole still have value. Anyway, poor no. old horse. His no. pizza is getting colder and colder and colder. It doesn't matter at all. I live as uh, one of my visitors from the United States once said. Our horse thrives on the heroes of ideas. <laughs> Of course, all the theorization so far would have listeners wonder about what sort of subjectivist crap theory is there. <laughs> so, of necessity, we need to introduce um, intersubjective mentalism as a basic ingredient. But of course, language we already know could only emerge, not on subjective grounds, but even even when people try to design a language themselves and think it's private, it doesn't stay that way. There's a famous example in America called Bunchling. It's oh, well, no, you're very kind. Oh, thank you, bless you. Thank you. Good luck. Bunchling. Bunchling. Yeah, it's I somewhere in California. Well, it's a place. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was, it was obscure, a language. I thought it's it was an obscure German drinking competition. No, 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 no. no. It's, it's an American language. It's quoted by David Crystal, I think. Um, somebody invented this and wanted to perhaps prove the, the private uh, language argument of Wittgenstein so on. And it turned out to become its own language, a little language that's spoken by a group of people. So Wittgenstein is a right on that one. But Wittgenstein, I want to show is fundamentally wrong in one sense. Driven by his externalist description of use, behaviorist uh, sympathies, he wanted to restrict it only to things that can be observed. Yeah. 90% at least of language is about things that are not present. If a lion could speak, we would not understand what he that, that, that is, I'm, I'm sure he's right what he, because the Lebensform yeah. form of life is, is so totally different. So we would have to become a lion. Yeah. I take that point. But if we restrict um, uh, meaning to use in the sense of observables, we've cut out ninety percent of language, which is about things that are not there. So you have to you have to project mentally. You have to project scenarios. So the mental scenario now becomes a huge issue in my theory. So I'm going. I'm, I'm proposed to repair this notion of use by re-injecting um, what he calls um, derogatory Vorstellungsklavier, the keyboard of the imagination. He says, well, of course, when we talk, we, we we play on the keyboard of the imagination, but it's incidental. It's incidental. Language meaning doesn't need that. I'm saying 
without it, it doesn't need anything at all. So she would have to catch it by more and more and more words. When will you ever touch down to the anchor of signifiers? You need to step out of the linguistic system into a uh, iconic, which is indexical, which is indirect iconic system. Yeah. Okay. Now, so the posterior now becomes terribly important. It is at the center of natural language, makes it natural. Well, it's interesting that the kind of term one might use in English would be wellspring of the imagination. And wellspring is a very material, naturally occurring entity. Right. Unfortunately, imagination is so um, much connected with a romantic and vague yeah. idea of intuition. And so. but, but in fact, you're saying it's there all the time. And it's the primary object of language. Well, the thesis I'm proposing is that while it is true that iconicity has been lost at the level of the signifier largely, almost completely, apart from on it here. It has been transferred massively and refined and complicated at the level of the signifier. And to quote from the um, earlier book, The Bobby In Language, page 152. Another great book. Uh, yes. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to write a readable, uh, then I don't know if I quite succeeded. But page 152, I say, at the level of the signified, we are iconic beings. And I, I, I have not changed my mind on that one, on quite a few other things. But I've um, learned an enormous amount from some of the harshest and finest analytical minds, like Quine, for instance. Why it comes down in the end to realize that meaning in, in normal language cannot fulfill the kind of role that either Davidson or any the analytic philosopher wants it to fulfill. So he invents a, a very nice thing. He says we have to lower our sights to domestic meaning. This is W.V. Quine, who amongst other skills was pro-apartheid. Oh, that's right, yes. Well, even fascists like Heidegger sometimes have good symptoms. Mm. You know, uh, getting to Heidegger for a moment, if, if we could, was, mm. there's an astonishingly brilliant, insightful moment in Heidegger, when, which I use a lot in my work on environmentalism. He refers to the forester, and the forester who spends his day obviously cutting down trees and then spends his evenings relaxing reading the newspaper. Only selected trees in Germany, ha of course. Having his, no public, having his public opinion formed with the cellulose yes. that he has generated and the lack of articulation between the two moments yes. and the fetishization of the object. Remarkable mm -hmm. Marxist critique yes. coming from Heidegger. Well, Heidegger. Brilliantly insightful. Yes. Yes. Well, the forest plays a huge role in Heidegger, of course, the clearing. Wasn't he caught in a forest, running away? That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Across a meadow, probably dealt with the cows with huge bells you know, <laughs> around him. Wonderful cliches. Picture book. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, good old Heidegger. Oh. Uh, of course, I have a, a pet theory all to do with my, my pursuit of, of uh, literary meaning and meaning natural language. And there, that is that I, I think there's a philosophical answer to this uh, political blindness. Of Quine or of Heidegger? No, no, no of Heidegger. Not of Heidegger. Quine. No, no, just stayed with Heidegger for a second. Right. In, in 1949, he still wrote in a letter um, a sentence about. Uh, um, describing you know, the modern world, um, motorized agriculture and um, masculines in the, in the chambers of Auschwitz, and to lump them together in one sentence, and it shows a huge insensitivity. And one of the central terms in Heidegger is, of course, Seins Vergessenheit, one word, the forgetting of the Sein. And I am accusing him throughout his work of Wahrnehmung. Vergessenheit, the forgetting of perception. The word Wahrnehmung, the English word perception, in German means truth taking. 
Does it? R Nemo. Perception is truth taking. You take for truth what you see, touch, hear. Yeah. In other words. But he wanted to focus on Zion in a pre-Socratic way. So he looks through the screaming bodies of Auschwitz. And he looks through, he doesn't see them. It's all about Zion. A distance um, dreams of possibly Jesuit origin. Um, of something that he wants to establish as being fundamentally more human than modernity. So, Vanimus Vergessner, perception, the forgetting of the importance of perception of screaming, pain, bodies in pain. You cannot see because well, of his long distance view. Your critique is not that far distant from Habermas's critique of Heidegger. Uh, of course, actually. I've read Habermas, so, yeah. I used to teach Habermas, so yes, it's probably very much influenced by. Well, what I mean is, one might not think that Habermas's theories of language are compelling, but I think he's right about the Heideggerian loss of identification, empathy, sympathy, which, at an operational level, is precisely about hearing mm -hmm. pain. No, no. I think I think he's one of the most successful, together with Foucault, pragmatist of natural language, communicative action, communicability is the social version of imaginability. Because imaginability is also immediately social, but communicability probably is prior to. Well, I hope you will send a copy of this new book to Habermas, and it's coming out with Cambridge Scholars Press. Is that it is Cambridge Scholars Publications. Cambridge Scholars Publications. It's, um, it's um, I think, well, they have a, a review, review process, and it's not quite a vanity press, but it's... Uh, um, it allows you more freedom, and um, I have not uh, tried, but superficially, to, to you know, uh, contrary to my, all my earlier books, it's been just too frustrating, to, because the, the, the position I'm holding is, is fairly radical, yes. um, and I don't want to make any compromises, so uh, here it is. You know, and, and, Take it or leave it. Absolutely. Now, of course, we've got about 10 minutes left. Yeah, right. I would love for us to indulge in something that you and I both enjoy, even yeah. as it is double-sided, double-edged and painful right. as well, which is a little bit of nostalgia. Right. Beautiful. So, Murdoch University started in 1973, effectively. Well, 72 on the drawing Se board. Se but 73 with students. 74 with, with students. students. And you came here that year. 74. So you've been in West, you came here from South Africa. Yeah, from, studied in Germany. From Canada. Oh, sorry, from Canada. Right. Germany, right. South Africa, Canada, Australia. Okay. Germany, um, undergraduate work in um, English philosophy and history. Then I had a DA scholarship to, uh, because I had been in England, so I wanted something exotic. So I had a look at South Africa. Rhodes University uh, had the leading English and the guy Butler, a Shakespearean and poet, and um, the, the guru of the 1820s settlers and um, the you know, progressive opposition, Helen Sussman there, and Arthur Fugard, and all kind of Very exciting. Patton, Activists and, and writers. Beautiful. Andre Brink, um, Red, Red Buff, and all these people gathered around uh, roads at times. So, it was, it was exciting. Um, from there, I, uh, I, I went to Canada for a year. Would have liked to settle there, but the draft dodgers of the Vietnam War from out of the US had occupied all the empty positions. And I missed the sun, so I looked at Australia, and there was the effort for Murdoch University. Um, um, interdisciplinary. And what I was looking for in the times of the supplement was literature and philosophy. And they said, precisely that's what we want. Written for me. Now, but so the I moment you arrived, it was almost shut down. Very early on in its existence. Not that early. Well, it has forever struggled. Let's, let's put it that way. It was a struggling 
uh, University of Asante. Um I started with um, uh, two PhDs and a master's and uh, a fourth one, and that was great because they started to do the library. Uh, all the PhDs in Merwick started to do the library. Then I ran an interdisciplinary course called Perceptions and Myth, the forerunner to Star, um, which had 36 members of the university, including the vet school, every school of science, everyone was represented in this room. Wonderful. Um, and the, the first, and I was the chair from 1975 onwards, the first three years, and on and off seven years or so. And the, the first important appointment that I was able to make with the help of the historian and the vice chancellor um, was John Frey, who was doing this as a PhD at Cornell. And uh, so I wanted to uh, start uh, a literature program on theory of principles, which didn't exist in Australia. They, they did some theory and honestly, but not. And so um, we wanted to collect and John and I worked together uh, throughout these years. Wonderful to do that. Fantastic mind, uh, uh, John's to, to work with. And he brought um, Bakhtinian theorization, um, advanced Marxist uh, uh, discourses. I had phenomenology and a few other We want to employ linguists, um, critical linguistics. We had, we had a long list of wonderful people, and four about. 15 years without published uh, the UWA in this department, hands down. University of Western Australia. Yeah, this is the old, old university, very respectable. But to know it was a powerhouse um, from the late 70s to the early 90s. So. Um, and that was, that was just unbelievable, uh, exciting. Now, some of the names we could mention, Horst, are people that I was talking about with Vijay yesterday. So Vijay Mishra, who said in the podcast yesterday he learned an enormous amount from John Froh and you. But others too, like Bob Hodge and John Hartley, yes. uh, Rita Felsky, uh, Michael O'Toole. So people all with... Very Some able, brilliant. At all with a special theoretical uh, strength um, that they could represent. And so we have this, it's almost uh, an adumbrational phenomenological structure where all these various aspects of theory could impinge on text. Yeah. And uh, uh, a little later, feminist theory, I, I, ran, I ran one of the first feminist feminist seminars, reading Kristeva to lesbian students. Julia Kristeva. Julia Kristeva, who I think, you know, obviously was the smartest of the French theorists, particularly because she sensed that her linguistics was insufficient for what she wanted to say about language. And some of the best observations she makes uh, are in a little book, Psychoanalysis, on psychoanalysis, published in Columbia at 89, I think. Um, um, title. Well, there's Desire in Language. No, that's no, an earlier no, that's, one. That's, that's the semiotic uh, take. Um, um, something I would love. I was we'll come back. Philippe Soleil was cheating on her, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners will know that I like to bring things down to the gospel level, which sometimes can be very apt. Yeah. Useful. Um, I think Murdoch University was a wonderful experiment, um, yeah. and uh, but it would have it was difficult to sustain, partly because our brightest bibliographers needed chairs, and there were no chairs at Murdoch; they were filled. Um, and later on, they started some personal chairs, but even that is only a limited, very limited number. Um, and so they had to look elsewhere. And our humanities group, uh, literature and um, communication studies in particular, and also Asian studies, with, um, created some 20 or 25 chairs around the world. Out of this. And at a certain point, actually, it was more successful than the ANU. In, in 
seating chairs. We did the statistics. We're very proud of them. It was ultimately unsustainable. Someone from Melbourne um, said uh, we've become victims of our own success. Well, I think the other thing is that a lot of these people were thinking about everybody from you know Alec Macau, Krishna Sen, whoever, Inang, Zoe Sapulis, people who gave Murdoch its patina in the late 80s, early 90s, and you have done that for four decades, in fact. Part of the difficulty is that the prevailing political economy of the time meant that these new interdisciplinary universities in Australia, Griffith University in Brisbane, Murdoch University in Perth, were dedicated to the idea of problem-solving rather than the parthenogenesis of disciplines. So it was quite natural that everybody Absolutely wanted to read right. philosophy, everybody wanted to read linguistics, Everybody wanted to read feminism. If somebody smart came along and had a take, you wanted to know about it, and you wanted to show respect for them. All of us did. Now, this is not the way in which academia regenerates itself. But then the second thing that happens that is conjunctural is, of course, that other universities with greater stature in an institutional sense absorb catch up and realize, Jesus, there are these things going on that are unlooked for in your world, Horatio. And they reach out and they grab it. Another feature was institutional under John Dawkins. The Australian um, Minister for Education. For education, in order to have uh, a better appearance in the UNESCO statistics of Australian education, um, he uh, decided to follow Britain and turn every college into a university. Yes. Um, so we actually for a while looked better educated in France. Um, the great disadvantage, of course, was that the research dollar couldn't possibly... Uh, you know, no, there were also lots of people who had built lives in these other institutions with the understanding so, that they didn't need to get doctorates and they didn't need to do research. Right. But, but the interesting thing was, as you mentioned, the interdisciplinary universities, both Griffith and, and, and Murdoch, and Griffith handled it much better than Murdoch, um, was that the colleges had natural power, not in their PhDs, but in their student numbers. And since universities were increasingly led by student numbers, uh, which kept the old universities safe for all kinds of other reasons, but was very, very difficult to compete with for the uh, Griffith. Griffith enlarged very quickly by emerging with something. Murdoch didn't, and said, we, you know, we, we, we were stuck. Murdoch had an additional problem, and that was that we were staffed more internationally, and the local population didn't take it to us uh, very kindly. Um, and I think it still, that still continues actually, the difficult image in Western Australia for many women. I mean, now we have nearly 20,000 students, and it's no longer as much. But uh, the damage, I think, has been done. But there's always, you know, I think we, we with the new Vice-Chancellor, uh, Richard Higgins, we are, I think, on the contact trail. Maybe hard work, I think it can be done. Well, the point is, it was a remarkable place. I can't really speak of it now, having just arrived, and I'm only floating in every now and then. But it changed my life, it changed your life. Uh, you helped to make this institution what it became, of course. You were a foundational figure. And as we finish up this conversation, listeners, one thing I would say is that it's very appropriate that we're sitting in a pub having this discussion. Because very much so, yes. Apart from the fact that we spent more time in pubs than in any other venue, certainly more than the university together, we, all of us who were Perth residents, could walk into a bar or a coffee shop or a restaurant and find Horst having a conversation about Kant's third critique with a taxi driver or a dishwasher or an environmental activist. Your assumption was, of course, that if the people around you didn't actually know this particular piece of writing, they probably understood the issues raised within it at a practical consciousness level. And it's that quality that you have of never speaking down to people and always assuming that they can be a form of communication that takes account of complex ideas. That is what really uh, marks you out, and that is what made Murdoch what it was. Just yesterday, a guy came up to me 
after I gave a seminar and said, Hi, I'm teaching photography here now. Twenty years ago, I had nothing to do with Murdoch, but my friends and I used to come and listen to your lectures for fun and to learn things. We were just living in a group house, unemployed, doing whatever we did. Well, that was the ethos at that time, and it was reciprocal. I think, between the wider community, the wider society, and the campus in ways that are harder to do probably nowadays. But you embody that. It's about saying these are complex philosophical concepts, but actually they wouldn't live if they didn't relate to everyday life. That's absolutely right. Very kind words. Thank you very much, Toby. Most enjoyable talking to you. It was great. Thank you.